so I'm really curious, obviously, um, would love to just get to know you a little bit more. So do you want to start off and just talk through how you got your start in sales? Sure, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of folks, when they say in sales, they really mean in SaaS, right? Or they really mean in B2B in tech, tech sales. In software, right? yeah, right? exactly, yeah. Um, my sales career did start before that. Um, I used to sell cars. So, it, you know, for a lot of folks, maybe those two things don't seem related, but there is so much overlap in this skill set. So the story of, you know, how I got my start in, in sales in general um, is part of the story of how I got my start in, uh, in B2B tech sales. So basically I was on a car lot. I was selling Kias. I have a I Kia. Sold- me too. I still own two of them. They're great. Nice. Um, <laughs> I love my Kia. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Anyway, um, so, <laughs> so I was I was selling cars at Kia. I had taken this gentleman on a test drive. We had so much fun. All of my test drives were fun, right? And so we would do this thing where we get in the car, and I would ask them like, "All right." there's two different kinds of people. There are the ones who just got to get the AC on when they first get in the car. And there are ones who just got to get the music on when they get in the car, which one are you? Right. So I'm not asking them anything about the car at all. I'm not, you know, selling. We're just having this conversation on common ground as human beings. I would say that's probably the biggest thing that I took with me from that sales environment into B2B tech sales. It's probably what's keeping me successful. But the story is that individual actually happened to be in tech sales. And he was like, did you know that what you're doing here, right? You could do someplace that was, I don't know, air conditioned. They have snacks. You won't be out here 12 hours a day in the hot Austin sun every Saturday. Um, so I w- he had me at snacks. And um... <laughs> <laughs> he would have had me at AC. Oh my God. I was, right? at, I was in Austin, uh, back last August. And it was like within five seconds, I was like melting. Oh, it was just bad timing on my part. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> it's okay. It's a, it's a lot. Um, so anyway, he's like, you should be my boss. This was back in 2015 or so. Uh, when, when in Austin, right. That tech sales talent pool was just growing and learning and building. I got to be a part of that. It was so great. So anyway, I went to one of these big, you know, sales talent cattle call interviews, the very first I'd ever gone to. And uh, I stood out enough. I got the call back. Uh, And the gentleman that was VP of sales at this company at the time, this company called Outbound Engine, uh, happened to be Scott Lease. So I, many of you may know, uh, he is. yeah, that, that's, that's actually, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, put those two together. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's a, kind of a, like a small sales world, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, it happens to be Scott Lease. He interviews me um, and I learn for the first time that you don't have to be uh, in order to get into tech, right? Or tech sales. You don't have to be tech savvy. You don't have to be, you know, stuffy. You don't have to have like a piece of tape holding your glasses together and a pocket protector. None of that. Cause here was this person in front of me uh, with like sandals on and some shorts and Surfing. like an, and like an Alice in Chains t-shirt. Uh, and he's like selling stuff. Right. And so, so anyway, I got the job and uh, you know, I learned all these things about myself. That's what kept me 
in the in the profession right that's what made me say all right this is for me it wasn't about you know the thrill of you know getting the clothes i was getting that elsewhere and it wasn't really even about you know the the money itself right although yes it was a it was a pay increase it was me finding out what i'm made of which is i think part of the experience of working at a startup in general but certainly of working at um, a startup in the in the sales function. So anyway, that's how I got my start. Happenstance, somebody came and plucked me from obscurity uh, at a Kia dealer. <laughs> yeah, at a Kia dealer. I love that. I feel like that's how uh, I love those kind of, um, I don't know, not so straightforward stories. You know, I, like I, for me personally, when I first got into tech, I was just sending my resume like to as many different places as possible. Like I was just... Anyway, like somebody take me, please. I just, I wanted to not work at the place that I was working. And um, my fiance at the time, now wife, we had a talk and we were like, okay, um, we're either beholden to our location, which was Southwest Michigan, not mm -hmm. exactly the tech hub of, of Austin, <laughs> right? And we had a conversation and she was like, I, I think you should just go for it. Like start like sending resumes out wherever. And so luckily the one place that responded was uh, what ended up becoming Zoom Info. It was Discover Org. But then, yeah, yeah and so I, I became the second product marketer at uh, Zoom Info. And, you know, the rest is kind of history, right? I got my start in tech and it's been awesome. Uh, and so I, I love uh, hearing about other folks who have, you know, kind of maybe start, didn't exactly like have their eyes set on, you know, this career, whether it's in sales or marketing or whatever but still ended up finding their way into this industry. That's super yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I refer to it as my non-linear path, there right? You go. I mean, yeah. I went to school for journalism, oh, uh, really? which again, there's also overlap. But yeah, yeah, you're right. This is not what I set out to do, but mainly just because I didn't know that it was a thing. Me neither. Right? Yeah, I had no idea about this. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't even call it like an industry, but it's just like this, this massive... I don't even know. I, I don't even like really know what to call it at this point. It's but, an like, organism unto itself, right? It is. It totally is. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was completely blind to it until all of a sudden I wasn't. But one thing that's that's interesting to me, though, that because you mentioned Scott Lease, for those that don't know, um, check him out on LinkedIn. He posts some really great um, sales stuff, very, very unique perspective. Um, very opinionated, which I love. It makes him a good follow. He also has a community surf and sales. And that also kind of ties back to you. You you helped uh, found SDR Defenders, which ended up getting acquired by Pavilion. And so it's it's interesting how community has been around your life for the past few years. How how would you say it's like ultimately shaped your career? I mean, it's how we when when all things are equal, right? And sometimes all things being equal means all things are bad. Uh, shout out to 2020. So, so, yep. so when the chips were down, which just before, just right before uh, we started uh, SDR Defenders and you saw this, these things happening, right? You saw um, salespeople being let go in droves unapologetically, right? Because folks were panicking. It was a tough time, I, no judgment, but like, that's what was happening. And there was, there were a lot of us, a lot of salespeople, tech salespeople who were like having these existential crises who were, 
you know, figuring, finding out how much we um, benefited from the community that we felt on our respective sales floors with our fellow salespeople. And that void was real. But a lot of folks weren't talking about it. Right. And, and maybe that's part of sales culture at that time where we weren't really showing a lot of vulnerability. Uh, there's this, you know, machismo, so to speak, where, oh, nothing's wrong with me. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, but I just decided to break that silence and be like, look, I need people. <laughs> you know, we're working from home. Right. And some of us not working at all. How do we survive? We don't survive by remaining isolated, right? Salespeople by and large are social creatures. And then the other piece of it though, right? Cause that's, that's the me part. That's the why I needed, you know, community. The other piece of it though, is like I said, there were those folks who were let go and it was a big chunk of us. And then there were those folks who were let go from other professions that then were looking for career changes, right? This is the huge impact that, that COVID and the pandemic had on folks, right? I mean, particularly women were hemorrhaging from the workforce in all industries. And when I started to think about how do I help these folks get back to a place, right? Of financial stability, get back to a place of feeling good about themselves um, for being able to achieve something in the work they do day to day. And then I started to look at, okay, what are the requirements for being a salesperson? What is the barrier for entry? And when it comes to a lot of hard credentials, the barrier for entry is actually almost non-existent in a sales career. So I was like, all right, what then is that step in between to get these folks who I think would enrich this profession or these folks who had been enriching this profession before this you know, terrible thing happened in, back into a place where they're feeling confident enough to go back out and get after it. And the answer was to arm them with information. Right, because you and I just mentioned, we didn't even know that sales as a career, right, or that tech sales as a career was a thing. And so that was the first thing is just letting people know that it's a thing and that you can do it. But the way that SDR Defenders came into it was like, look, you know, there are these folks, they obviously, you know, we know that you don't have to have that much experience, uh, particularly in tech uh, or in sales but they just need to know how to interview for these jobs, right? They need to know the basics of, you know, what, how to talk about their past experience um, in a way that sort of hints at an ability to prospect or an ability to, you know, break through noise and things like that. So that's the kind of content we started to put out in SDR Defenders. Folks were responding to it. They were, again, they were mostly responding though to this, you know, if we link arms and refuse you know, to do this by ourselves and refuse to give up what would happen, right? And then you see, we're seeing now what would happen. And I think a lot of other folks caught on because, you know, right after we launched, you start to see all these other communities come up. Um, and it's, it's a part of sales culture that I think was long overdue uh, and that I'm excited to see growing and, and enduring. I, I love seeing all of this attention that community is getting today, which is why I wanted to bring it up uh, with you, because I think it's it's interesting, not just, you know, that you were able to start a successful community during the pandemic. It was almost like this kind of like lifeline to this thing that you had said, right? We're all social creatures, especially sellers. 
Um, and so creating that community was in a way like a solution to this big problem. But then also for another organization, a much larger community to see this. And then uh, like I, I had never heard of communities acquiring other communities before. So it's this, it's this cool, again, another like separate like organism almost like an organism within an organ i don't know this yeah, kind of thing well, but it's so interesting to me the thing of, and it, me too right i i didn't know this was a thing um but when when pavilion formerly uh formerly revenue collective looked at who they were um serving which is probably the first question you want to ask yourself when you want to start a community is like who do i want to help um when they looked at who they were helping up until that point, the model was folks at a much more senior level in their career. And then they likely saw, like I just identified, that folks at all points in their career need that kind of support, right? That'll um, open up I the think, total addressable market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what attracted them to, to SDR Defenders, right? They're like, here are these folks. They've got, you know, a couple thousand people who have raised their hand and said, you know, it's important to me to skill up as a salesperson. And I understand that part of that is to be around other successful people. Um, so it was a, it was kind of a, a no brainer now that I think about it. Uh, and it was certainly a really, um, it, it makes sense as a match. I want to pivot over to what you do with inclusive. So one thing that I'm, I'm, very interested in specifically. So for a little bit of background, I lead competitive Intel over at ClickUp. And so it's all about, you know, helping our sales team feel more comfortable and confident when they come up against competitors, making sure that the marketing that we're coming out with, like the copy and the messaging is very much aligned to how uh, maybe people are already feeling about a specific competitor. Mm -hmm. Now I'm thinking about inclusive, which is a very mission driven organization. How do you balance a competitive mindset of wanting inclusive to succeed, but also wanting this separate just mission altogether to succeed. Like maybe other companies or competitors are um, also, you know, wanting their specific product to succeed. H how do you balance those two in your head when, when you're selling? Well, to a large extent, um, it's, it's just the way it has to be, right? Because this mission is not just, as I think you were saying, it's not just a mission that I care about relative to you know the market or making people's jobs easier which most you know products are intended to do i do care about that but at the end of the day like i care about people i care about dismantling systems of historical disadvantage and exclusion right i care about equal access to economic freedom equal access to a sense of belonging and i would care about that no matter where i worked mm -hmm. But that's not a passion that I even know how to, <laughs> to mute. Uh, so that if, if it came down to like which one, my heart, body, mind, and soul are always going to pick this, this mission. Um, but to your point about how to stay competitive, this is, you know, a billion dollar industry, right? Not just, you know, DE&I as a whole, but specifically the, the emerging tech that's helping people um, figure out how to measure success in a meaningful way. I want to win because the more I win, the more I advance that mission. So, so the com competitive spirit is kind of built into it. I've felt this way, again, my whole life. I just only just now got the opportunity to do it as a job. So, you know, I don't think 
I haven't felt like I've had to sacrifice, you know, the money for the mission. I have found that my passion for the mission, right, is what drives me to get after that money. The other piece of it um, is, you know, in addition to the, the social things I'm trying to impact, there are these prevailing ideas about DE&I training and programming um, that, you know, are, can be negative. And, you know, things like, nobody really means this stuff. What does it even do? And, you know, you, you just talk and then nothing happens. And last, so I was hearing all of these things. And last year I attended, a year before last, I'm sorry, I attended this webinar and it was about how uh, cultured leaders, DEI leaders and HR leaders deal with burnout. Now I got on the call because I was doing, like you said, some competitive research. I was trying to get to know my ICP. Uh, but what I heard was a bunch of really sincere, genuine people who've got into this profession to make an impact. And they're the ones who are receiving all of this negative talk about the work that they're trying to do. I don't think people keep that in mind. I think people think when you're criticizing DE&I training or DE&I programs, it's just this thing that you're criticizing. But again, there are people who, this is their life's work. So when I heard that, it stuck with me. And then when Inclusive came along, it was an opportunity to support those folks. You know, and you'll when we talk about inclusive more specifically later, I'll, I'll get into it. But that's really what it is. I'm, I'm doing this, the, I guess, the, the third level, right, of, of, you know, the mission, the money and all of that. And what I'm trying to impact is certainly to sit side by side with these professionals and let them know and help the world to know, like, they're doing a good job. They really do care. But the fact of the matter is, right, the tech hasn't caught up to be able to help folks meaningfully measure right the impact that they're making so they're having to just you know talk about it right and they don't have a lot of you know it's not really quantifiable mm -hmm. um and right it, it tends to focus on the kind of work that they're they, they can get funding to be able to do uh does still tend to focus on you know the rules of it all right the the what you must do and what you must not do to get you know to keep your job when what we all know is that there's so much more to that when we're talking about, you know, how to build inclusive culture, how to give everybody an equal access to a sense of belonging. So, so that's what it is. I'm, yes, I'm a competitive salesperson and I'm going to get after it. Uh, but that's because I know that it advances the mission and because I know uh, that it supports the professionals that are doing this work every day. I really appreciate all that you just laid out for me. The thing that really stuck out to me specifically was you talking about the burnout that you're seeing all of these uh, trainers, these teachers that are rolling out these kinds of initiatives. And it's not lost on me that you're also probably feeling some of this burnout yourself because this is very emotionally intensive work. We're not just like going out and and this isn't to to knock against the product that I represent. It's not like, pro, you know, productivity or like project management. Like, don't get me wrong. Like that stuff's important uh, to my <laughs> boss if they're listening. I, I really do think it's important, but um, it's 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 fundamentally different than what the work that Inclusive is doing. And so when you have so much emotional weight put into the thing that you're selling, there's obviously going to be points where you're feeling um, burnt out. How do you, how do you go about addressing that 
in your day to day because it is something that you have to deal with on a day to day basis. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, a, and this again, this started happening, this trying to solve for this problem you just presented is really sort of ramped up in um, 2020, right? When there was this awakening, this, you know, this, I don't know, groundswell of folks saying, hey, maybe we've been dragging our feet <laughs> on, on a few things. With that came a lot of folks, right? Because I was being so outspoken on these issues, with that came a lot of folks like in my inbox asking for help. And when I, if I think too deeply about, you know, the number of messages still in my LinkedIn inbox of people asking for specifically for help gaining, you know, a sense of belonging at their jobs, right? Or help advancing that at their jobs, salespeople, most of them, right? So not even people in the DEI profession. So if I think too deeply about how many of those messages went unread and, you know, how little I felt like I was able to actually help those people, then it gets draining. But what also happens is another set of messages that are coming inbound that are saying, hey, because you said this out loud, right, um, it encouraged me to start an employee resource group for LGBTQ plus people at my job, right? It encouraged me to go and ask, you know, my leader, you know, just something simple like, hey, noticed we don't actually have a lot of women on the team. What do you think about that, right? Um, things like that. And so that actually fills the cup back up because I'm like, you know, you're, you are helping, which I think is, I think, we, again, this is a need that we've been conditioned to ignore in a lot of ways, but the need to feel like you're helping people is legitimate. And for me, like that need and being able to fulfill it um, is what balances out uh, all of this really draining stuff, right? Because you're right. I think the biggest part of it as a person who is, it's very meta, right? <laughs> as a person who I am a black woman in an industry that is not that diverse, uh, I am a salesperson, which is a profession <laughs> that is not that diverse. And then a big part of the job, in addition to getting to sit across from these professionals who are working just as hard uh, to advance this stuff as I am, is, oh, by the way, right, I have to be constantly overcoming objections, right, from people who have said this is important to them, but when it's time to pay, right, so I'm, I'm encountering this problem in so many parts of my life. And I haven't even gotten to the LinkedIn comments, but um, like oh, the no. comment section of LinkedIn is a wasteland <laughs> yeah, uh, a yeah, lot yeah. of the time on posts about these issues. But anyway, so yeah, it's, I am, I'm catching fire. It's coming from everywhere, but it's, it's enough when I sit across from, you know, a person that just started their role, right? As a DE&I leader, they work at a company that didn't have one before, for instance. And you know, they're, so they're just now building the programming that will foster the inclusive culture that they want at their organization. And Andrew, the enthusiasm that these people have, the determination, right? It's, it's unshakable. I cannot help but be encouraged and excited by that. I cannot help but look at myself and say, well, this person is engaging with this problem in an even more intimate way than I am. And look how much hope there still is. Who am I, you know, 
to sit back and, and leave that person unsupported or to throw my hands up and give up. Can't do it. So that's what keeps me going. So much passion. I love it. Oh my gosh. I'm so fired up right now. I don't even know how I'm supposed to even respond to that. Oh my God. Whew. Okay. I, 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 can't, I can't even really like tack onto that. So I'm going to leave that as it is. It does get me thinking now, obviously, because how long have you been with Inclusive at this point? Uh, about six months. So six months. Okay. Not that long. So, um, but it's long enough to where you have a really good sense, right? For um, like what companies are doing for DEI efforts and what companies are not doing for DEI efforts. So, so walk me through a little bit, like what some of like the, the more leading companies are doing. And this is actually going to be a two part question. So what are the leading companies doing? And then what are the best inclusive companies or excuse me, inclusive customers doing when they're using inclusive? I love this question. Uh, so, and not just because I get to talk about my job, uh, but so what are the, 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 some of the best practices or some of the more successful in general, right? Not, not just our customers. I think number one, what the best companies are doing is not approaching this as a nice to have. The most successful companies are recognizing that the extent to which people feel included uh, at your organization, the extent to which people experience psychological safety and support at your organization directly impacts the bottom line, right? It just does. And there are these specific ways that it does, right? If you're trying to attract, right, a more diverse set of people, and what we know is that increasingly candidates are asking questions about culture. They're asking questions about, you know, the sense of belonging and the sense of inclusion. If the only answer or the best answer you can give those folks is this same old, we really care a lot about culture. It's one of our values. If you don't, if you're not doing anything beyond that, you, you're losing out top talent. And so this is the argument that I have to make a lot of the time. Am I a little annoyed that I have to make it? Yes, I feel like it's something people should have accepted by now, but the best companies recognize that. Another thing that the best, uh, most successful companies are doing is they're not leaning too much on just hard training, right? So what you, again, what you must do to not get fired, right? What you must do to not be subject to a lawsuit. Uh, and they're also, they're not, um, you know, focused on silencing people, right? We saw, now I won't name names, we know, uh, but there were a couple companies uh, that said, mm, we, we can't talk about these issues at work. Uh, and those companies saw a mass exodus, right? So that's the don'ts, right? But, but those companies who, who, who are not shrinking from what the market is telling us about what candidates and employees really want, uh, in terms of how socially responsible and how uh, tuned in they are to people's experiences there. Those are the people that are winning talent. Those are the people that are retaining talent. And those are the people whose employer brands, you know, become more and more beloved. On the flip side, <laughs> again, like I said, the folks who are not successful are the ones who are, it's not just that they're shrinking from the conversation. What I find often is that they are centering the least willing 
people, right? When they think about their programming, that is to say, instead of thinking about it as I have, you know, this large population of folks who are open to uh, learning about, you know, themselves in terms of their habits with bias and their habits with microaggressions, right? Because they are seeking uh, emotional to grow their emotional intelligence or they're seeking behavior change, right? Instead of centering those folks, what's happening is people are like, well, you know, old Jim's not going to go along with it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, uh, we got this good old boy here, you know what I'm saying? And he's not going to go along with it. And so since we know we have like five people at this company uh, who would object to the very existence of unconscious bias, let alone go to a training about it, then we're not ready for this as an organization. Those are the folks who are being left behind because like I said like after what we saw in 2019 2020 um and this what's building now right um this awakening this consciousness um that's not going backward at any point and so if you as a company or you as a leader attempt to silence it or attempt to run from it you know I just I don't I don't know how that's going to work out for you <laughs> you know, too uh, well. for too long, for too long. And the second question was about, you know, what the, what inclusive's best customers are doing. Uh, and it, it's related to this, you know, do's and don'ts sort of culture around, uh, around diversity and around uh, inclusion and belonging. So the, our best customers are those who don't settle for just, we rolled out a training, we're responsible for getting this information out there. We checked that box, right? We've, you know, sort of put programs in place to make sure that we're compliant with this and that. And so we checked that box. And then we, you know, are actively recruiting diverse candidates. There's just not a lot in our pipeline, but we're looking for them. So check that box. Our most successful customers understand that that will never be good enough. And it's not just that it won't ever be good enough because it won't satisfy the appetite of people like me, right? Who are gonna be these you know, activists and uh, the squeaky wheels, but it's not enough because it does not engender the kind of lasting behavior change that has to happen to really fix a company culture to really impact the extent to which people feel a sense of belonging. And what that means is inclusive is a conversation platform. So we enable people to host these conversations. We write content about a bunch of different topics, 60 different topics. A lot of them do have to do with social justice issues, but there are topics about psychological safety uh, that we have content on, mental health, things like that. So we say, what happens if once we put out these trainings, right? What if we think about, well, how do people contextualize that training? When do people have the opportunity to apply what they've learned in that training, right? With their actual peers. And so again, within this conversation platform, these conversations take place. Folks are you know, encouraged to then share sentiment data which we collect, we collect sentiment and engagement data in this platform. And then we serve that up to these professionals that I was talking to you about at the top of, uh, of the conversation, right? 
who are often getting a hard time about proving that what they're doing is working. So the most successful folks at Inclusive are incorporating conversations and dialogue into their DEI programming, and they're measuring, you know, beyond just what the training has done and beyond just a, a typical employee engagement survey. They're measuring even specific to, you know, a given topic or a set of topics. You know, what are people who actually work here experiencing? You know, because it's one thing, and again, I won't name names, but there is a, there is a very well-known uh, sneaker athletic company that has a really uh, well-established brand as folks who are conscious, particularly around the Black Lives Matter movement. But what happened is there was this Instagram account of anonymous stories it's called Black At, whatever this um, name of this company was. And there were people anonymously sharing stories about microaggressions that they were experiencing, about you know unconscious bias that they were experiencing. So the uh, we stand with this group of folks statement didn't match up to what people were experiencing. And again, I don't think that th that's this insidious thing that the professionals who are charged with you know building culture at that organization uh, are doing or or not doing. I think they just didn't know. So this platform. And what we do at Inclusive, right, tries to close that communication loop. I've been in this situation so many times where, I, again, I'm the only Black woman at this company, uh, not at this company, but at a company, and they're trying to hire for diversity. And one of the first things they do is encourage people who fit the demographic that they're recruiting to ask their friends. The, the number of times that I have sat there and been like, there is no way I'm inviting other people to come here and be microaggressed against, um, you know, I wasn't going to say that out loud. So my poor, you know, DE&I leader at that company or my HR leader at that company is going to just keep spinning wheels, trying to recruit for this demographic, trying to get, you know, internal buy-in for people to bring their friends because they don't know that what's actually happening is people don't feel a sense of belonging enough to do that, you know, in a, in a genuine way. People don't feel included enough to be able to evangelize this as a place to, to work and to stay and where you'll be genuinely supported. So access to the kind of, again, sentiment and engagement data that they're getting from the inclusive platform. That's what I mean when I say it's closing that loop. Uh, and oh, by the way, when I say, it's, when I say conversation platform, um, the conversations themselves uh, and the, the questions we ask and the way that we ask them uh, is meant to, right, it's engineered to elicit, right, the kind of meaningful thing that folks can use to, um, you know, direct their programming moving forward uh, in, a, in a meaningful way, right? So it's, they come to these conversations, they hear their peers talk about their experiences, everybody gets equal time to speak in our, in our conversation. So they hear their peers talk about these experiences that they're having. And then the behavior change that, that we need, that I talked about before, it comes from a more sticky place. So the behavior change you get from training alone or box checking is, again, I'm not going to do these things so that I don't get fired. The behavior change that you get when you add dialogue, when conversations drive culture at your organization, that behavior change is, I'm going to be more intentional about the things I do and say because I heard this peer of mine you know, talk about this experience and I don't want to be a person that perpetuates these negative experiences for that person, right? 
or I'm going to change my behavior because I learned in one of these conversations that maybe I'm a little bit too uh, cynical or judgmental about other people's capacity to offer me a sense of belonging. So it's all of these things that bring this very human element into the work that these folks are doing. And, and I believe that that's why uh, they're more successful than their counterparts. It's a much needed step forward in uh, what is typically just a mandatory one hour long video every single year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that. It's bridging the gap, like you just mentioned, and having folks take that next step forward and trying to put their own experiences back into uh, these prompts. It sounds like there's like prompts of like how that dialogue or that conversation yes. it, like starts. I'm so excited to get to talk about this. So, uh, so it's, it's a really simple format, but like I said, it's, uh, we're super intentional about it. So it's three questions, right? Three questions, equal time to share. One person is hosting, uh, and, you know, depending on the size of an organization or whether or not they're using like breakout rooms, um, you know, can be 300 people with breakout rooms of four to eight, uh, or sometimes it's just a small group of like 12 leaders at any rate, the questions follow this format. The first question is, you know, about the story of self, right? So the first question is, you know, about personal experiences. This does the work of, you know, immediately asking people to lower their guard and share something. And because everyone gets to share, you're right away probably going to learn something about the folks that you work with that you would not have known if this, you know, dialogue wasn't encouraged. So for instance, you know, one of the questions, this is just an example, might be, I mean, there's a, there's a really sort of, um, let's just get right into it kind of question. We have a common ground conversation. And the question is, name one thing that you are proud of about your country and name one thing that embarrasses you. Yeah, in America, that can be a pretty volatile question but because everybody gets a chance to talk and like i said you're learning and because of the way the question is worded right it 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 breeds this authenticity the kind of candor that's necessary to meaningfully get people to come together but that's that's one of the the more meaty ones right folks need to be a little bit more advanced in their culture building for that to work uh but something more simple is like okay talk about a time when you you know, felt a sense of belonging and, and, you know, what that meant. So you hear people do that. The second question then is around a fact or, you know, a, the state of things. So essentially, what is the backdrop to which these experiences that I just heard about are happening, right? In other words, what might be contributing to these experiences that I just heard about? So uh, we have a, a conversation or a topic about uh, equity for women. And I learned in that second question, in the setup for that second question that in America, only 20% of landowners are women. I did not know that. And it was even more, it was even more impactful after having heard women in this conversation tell their stories about how a lack of equity is impacting their lives. So I've learned about them then I've learned the backdrop to which these things are happening. And, you know, like I said, said differently, maybe what's contributing to these things happening. And then the third question is around, you know, collaboration, right? Not necessarily saying, all right, now let's solve racism uh, in this 90 minute conversation, but it is saying, it is asking people, right? So to think about 
what is the overlap between the stories that I've heard and the stories that I'm telling? And what are some of the things that we can think about doing that can impact this environment, right? How can we show up in a way that is, you know, more empathetic to these people who I've, I work with and who I've learned from? And, you know, the things that come out of these conversations are really powerful and really beautiful. And, and I think, you know, again, the more people shy away from this thing, the, the more that they're, they're losing out on that, on that kind of experience. Oh, and the other thing uh, that, that, we, that we do that our more successful folks are doing uh, is that, again, I, I spoke about this question. Well, we had this conversation, but that's just top. Now what? Uh, we answer the now what? So in our platform, uh, after the conversation, everyone that uh, participated is sent a prompt to commit to an action. So, you know, some of, sometimes the action is, say, say it's a group of leaders that just went through uh, one of these conversations. One of the actions that they could be asked to commit to is to sponsor an uh, employee resource group, right, around the topic that they just discussed. Uh, one of them could be, you know, if I'm an individual and I've just had the conversation about sustainability, you know, I commit to volunteer here or plant a tree there, things like that. So we're making it, and you can do it with just a, a click and then you, you're sent to whatever website that you would need to do uh, to follow, to carry out that action. So we're, again, it's full circle. It's yes, I've had the training. I know what I should and shouldn't do. Now I've figured out really why I should, should and shouldn't do those things. And I also have been given the opportunity uh, to continue that conversation and continue that action after the fact. Almost like two steps, three steps forward, rather than just like the the mandatory training. Then not just the not just bridging the gap uh, between employees and the leaders. It's almost like you know the the additional step of taking action then too, or given the tools to to be able to take action too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just one of those weirdos out here trying to change the world. Hey, what can I say? Love it, <laughs> Nikki. This has been. Uh, an incredible conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to to chat with me, and I appreciate you being willing to go over uh, some amount. So, uh, what was it? It's been like fifteen minutes over, which is I didn't time even notice. That, that's what I love. So, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be able to have this conversation. Um, where can folks follow you if they want to learn more about you and your story, or or about inclusive? Um, well, you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. I live there. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. Um, but, but I'm also on Twitter. And if you have not been engaging with B2B tech sales Twitter, like it's a whole thing. We're having fun. The gift wars in these threads are hilarious. Uh, and it's a less noisy channel if you're trying to sell to these folks as well. Uh, so Twitter at no Nikki Ivy. Uh, it's not no as in rejection, K-N-O-W, Nikki Ivy. Uh, and it's also no Nikki Ivy on Instagram as well, where you might catch me lounging on the beach or singing Britney Spears in my story. So whatever it is. It's the good I'm content. Here. It's the content that people need, right? The, the Britney <laughs> Spears content. Love it. <laughs> Nikki, appreciate you uh, joining once again. And uh, with that, I think we'll call it the episode. So appreciate it. This was so fun. Thank you.